Let's stand together this morning as we look at God's Word, God's precious Word, inspired by His Spirit. Let me read this text to you, and I ask you to listen carefully as the story of Ruth unfolds. And the most important thing that you can ask as we read through these Old Testament narratives is, what is God doing? Our eyes so quickly go to what the people, the characters, the human players in the story are doing, but continue to ask that question, what is God doing? What's God doing behind all of this to bring about His eternal purpose? Ruth 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with those young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So, She lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize her. And he said, Let it be not known among the women, uh, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother in law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she, sold, she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, We come to you this morning as your children, adopted, adopted through the work of Jesus, 
You have declared over us that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, our hearts, our hearts soar with joy, soar, soar with joy and freedom when we hear your word say, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that you, as our Father, has pl- have placed your spirit in our hearts. Moving us, drawing us to cry out to you as our Father. And we are grateful for this. And we know that you have so much in store for those who love you. You have, you have redeemed us and you are redeeming us. And you are overcoming our sin. You have been victorious over our sin. And though we groan under the pressures of this life, you are, you are working for us an exceeding weight of glory beyond comparison. You have promised us and you have declared to us in your word that you work all things, all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. The purpose of transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ You are doing that through all things in our lives, Father. Because we are your blood-bought children. We thank you. We thank you that nothing can thwart, nothing can thwart the work of your steadfast love in us to, to call us, to justify us, to sanctify us, to glorify us. You are causing all things to work together to that end. We thank you for that today, Father. We rejoice in that. We pray that as we walk through this particular account together, that you would impress these very truths in our hearts. And that in Christ, we know that you have given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, and that nothing can separate us from your love. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Even our sin, even our failure, even our frailty, even our faithlessness cannot separate us from you. Even when in seasons of our life we break out and look like we were before we were adopted, yet you, you restore us and you call us back and you, you cause all things to work for our growth in likeness, our repentance, our humility. Father, you have poured your love into us by the Holy Spirit. And you are working out all things in your sovereign providence so that you would bring many sons to glory. And that in that redemptive work, Jesus would be glorified. Father, we pray that you would do that in us this morning. May we see the big picture. May we see what you are doing. And may we experience what you are doing through the Word. We thank you that this is inspired and errant and authoritative and that is profitable to us this morning. We ask you, Father, to revive us according to your word, that you would be glorified in our lives, and that we would know your rest and your peace. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. There is a cosmic conflict that began in Genesis. 
and God started it. Genesis 3.15 says God's promise. He says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Adam and Eve listened to the temptation of the evil one, and they longed to be like God as well, and to take all of God's created things and use them for themselves and for their own pleasure, and enslaved themselves to sin. And there was a kingdom of darkness that began in the world. And then God said, I will put enmity between that kingdom of darkness and another kingdom that will begin in the world. A kingdom of light. The seed of the woman. God promised that one day, through that kingdom, that he would crush the head of the serpent. God started a cosmic conflict so that one day he will be victorious and reverse the effects of the fall. There are two kingdoms in that conflict, right? The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Colossians 1 verses 13 and 14 speak of those two kingdoms and how God is removing people from the kingdom of darkness, the seed of a serpent, and he's transferring them into another kingdom, right? This the kingdom of the seed, the kingdom of His Son. And He's forgiving them. And God is using everything around the lives of members of that kingdom of light to accomplish His saving work. Just like we read, God is causing all things, all things to work for a specific good Brothers and sisters, let us always remember that it is not any good that Paul or the Holy Spirit have in mind in Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30. That is the specific good of being conformed into the image of the Son. That's the good. That's the blessing that we read about this morning. That is the good that all things are working together toward. And God in that good is going to, as it says in Romans 8, he is going to have many sons, many children, who are conformed to the image of the Son so that Jesus would be glorified in many, many children looking, speaking, acting, talking just like him. Hebrews 2.10 says it this way, he is bringing many sons to glory. That's going to be the end of the cosmic conflict. God will win this. He already has won it eternally in Christ. God in steadfast love will accomplish these great things in the lives of His chosen covenant people. Those who are in Christ by grace through faith. God will accomplish these great things as we have known in in our own lives and in the story of Ruth. He accomplishes these great things providentially, sovereignly, through the movements of our lives. All things work together for that good, to conform us into the image of Christ. Like we've been saying, to bring us from what? Fall to glory. He is bringing many sons to glory. And He Himself, our great God, is a Redeemer. He is buying us. He has bought us out of the kingdom of darkness, placing us into the kingdom of light. 
buying us out of the, the bondage to sin and making us look like Jesus. We've seen these truths played out in the narrative of Ruth. Just look back with me for a few moments. We've seen the characters of Ruth and Naomi brought from spiritual death or spiritual unfaithfulness to conversion or humble repentance. How did God do that? He pressed with His hand upon their lives, didn't He? He caused them in His sovereignty and His providence to experience great pain. But that great pain and all of it was working for a good, wasn't it? You can see it in the story. Sometimes it's harder to see it and believe it in our own lives, isn't it? God was pressing His hand upon their lives through those providences. Even through His Word, you can see how His Word, His law, the Pentateuch, was at work in the hearts of Naomi and Ruth and even Boaz. God was pressing them forward in His plan through His Word. And certainly His merciful providence as He drew them from the country of Moab back to the house of bread to bring them from emptiness to fullness in Him. We've seen God move them from that spiritual emptiness to an increasing fullness as God makes them His workmanship. We looked at chapter 2 last week and we saw how God's steadfast love was being poured into the hearts of Ruth and Boaz in particular because then you could see it be coming out of their lives and for one another. Ruth to Naomi and Boaz to Ruth and Ruth to Naomi through his work in in their lives. They begin to reflect it. And God providentially brings them together to serve one another. He's preparing them for good works and He's preparing good works for them. And we, we know where this story's going, right? But they didn't. God was working all things together for their good and for the good of His people throughout eternity. So they would fulfill the important role that they had been chosen to play in God's eternal redemptive plan. The plan to victoriously end that cosmic conflict by providing a seed savior. Right, That's where we're going with this. God was doing all of this to provide a seed savior. The promise of Genesis 3.15 to come through Boaz and Ruth. To crush the serpent's head. To bring many sons to glory. That is the kind of perspective we need to have with our lives all the time. They're not different. They're, they're part of God's covenant people and if we are in Christ, so are we. God, through our lives, is bringing many sons to glory. Christ's purposes are being fulfilled in all that God does, providentially, sovereignly, even painfully. Now, Here's where we come into chapter 3. We have to ask ourselves a question. Will Naomi, will Ruth, will Boaz live perfect lives from, from here on out? Will they never have any obstacles to overcome? Will there be no challenges to their integrity? What happens when someone acts out in a way that looks an awful lot like the old life before repentance? What if one of them does that? What if someone becomes impatient with God's timing 
as he is unfolding his plan? And what if one tries to run ahead of the wisdom of God's word and his ways and his timing? What if, what if someone, because of spiritual immaturity and ignorance and naivete, pursues a very precarious course of action that could bring with it a great temptation to sin? Does that mean God's eternal redemptive plan is forfeited? Does that mean God's purpose to convert and humble and bring to repentance and make a person his workmanship and prepare good works for them to walk in and bring them to glory is is futile now? Is it all going to be derailed? Is this the end of the story? Does that mean God's steadfast love and faithfulness and His promises to these chosen, covenant, trusting, and repentant people will fail ultimately? Does that mean God will eternally cast aside those whom He has chosen because of their failures, of their frailty, their faithless actions? Here is, I think, the message of chapter 3. And it's a lengthy main idea, but I want you to catch every part of it. Please, think about it. In steadfast love, God sovereignly incorporates both our grace-enabled godliness, but also our failures, our frailty, and our faithlessness into the providential working of His faithful hand so that they do not frustrate but rather forward His eternal redemptive plans to bring many sons to glory. This, if you can hold on to this, will be a great rest for your soul. Not an excuse for irresponsibility, but a great rest in the greatness of God. Think about it. I'm going to read it again. Just think about it. In steadfast love, God sovereignly incorporates our grace-enabled godliness our obedience, but also our failures, our frailty, our, our faithlessness into His providential working of His faithful hands so that they don't frustrate it. They don't frustrate His redemptive plans. Rather, they forward it. They forward His eternal redemptive plans to bring many sons to glory. Now, you think about that truth, and you might then ask yourself, so then it doesn't matter what we do. Right? You knew I was going to say that. It doesn't matter what we do then. No, no, it absolutely matters. If you think our response and actions do not matter, you've missed the point completely. What we think and say and do as God's people absolutely matters because we're called to do it for everything, for His eternal glory. That's why we exist. And that will be our great pleasure, and it is the pleasure of God. But the point is that God is so great and so good and so amazingly sovereign that His eternal redemptive plan is not bound by our failures. What kind of a Savior would He be if our sin disrupted and destroyed His work of salvation? You could think of, you could think of a, um, someone trying to rescue someone who's drowning in the, drowning in the lake. Well, well, he's not a very good lifeguard if the thrashing of the one drowning prevents him from saving them, right? He grabs them, and in spite of everything they're doing to kick and scream, he will bring them safely to shore. This is the greatness of our Savior. 
He's not bound by our failures or our frailties or our faithlessness that leads us to disobedience. God sovereignly and providentially even incorporates all things to still work together for the good of bringing many sons to glory. As God's redemptive plan advances, there will still be sin in the lives of God's people. Right? We are still sinners. We will sin. We are seeking to walk in repentance. We desire to please God, but there is still going to be sin that comes from our lives until the day we see Jesus face to face. There will still be attacks from Satan. There will still be assaults from the world, but nothing, nothing can hinder or frustrate God's eternal plans and purposes to save all whom He will. That's part of what chapter 3 is going to reveal to us. That's the glory of God's steadfast love. That's the greatness of His faithfulness. That, That is the supremacy of His sovereignty. That's the power of His providence. This is the glory of God we'll see together as we look at His saving work. Isn't not true in the life of Joseph? We know it there. Whose sin was incorporated into God's saving plan in the life of Joseph? Brothers, fathers, maybe even Joseph's, Potiphar's wife, I mean, how many sins were part of the whole incorpor- the whole tapestry? There were lots of dark threads woven through the tapestry. And when Joseph would look at these, he would say, what? But God was with him all the way. And he says at the end, who am I in the place of God? I will care for you to his brothers. Because through all this, God has worked great salvation. You meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good to save many lives. Is this not true in the life of Jesus? Acts 2.23, where Peter in preaching says that God from eternity has ordained the wicked hands of ungodly men to crucify Christ, but God was the one who purposed that from the beginning. God is a master of using human frailty and failure and unfaithfulness and not being frustrated by it, but in His sovereign providence incorporating it into the success of His redemptive plan. Who would say it this way, and many have said this, God knows how to use sin sinlessly. He does this. He's so kind to us. So merciful, so gracious. Is not this going to be true in the life of Ruth? It will be, I'll show you. And it's certainly true in our lives. Well, let's see how these truths are worked out in the life of Ruth. I have three points that unfold this particular section of the narrative for us this morning. One is Naomi's plan. Two is Ruth's pursuit. And three is Boaz's poise. Let's look at it together. Number one, Naomi's plan. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? 
Naomi has been prayerful, hasn't she? All the way from chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, she blessed her daughters-in-law, remember that? And she wanted to, to pray over them, may the steadfast love of God be upon you. May you become happy and fruitful and blessed in the houses of your husband. She wants, she, she wants God to be kind to them. She wants them to know marriage and children and fruitfulness in God's plan. She's, she's blessed them in that way. Naomi, Naomi has also been perceptive. Look back at chapter 2 and verse 20. She's, all, she's not just praying, but she is, she is perceptively watching the unfolding of God's providence. She sees it. She's, she is beginning to see it. Chapter 2, verse 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he, or may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness, whose steadfast love has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. What is Naomi doing here? She's watching God at work. She's watching God show steadfast love through Boaz to Ruth, to her, and, and now it has come to mind, oh, God brought together Ruth and Boaz Ruth didn't know what field she was going to. Boaz didn't know the timing of coming in the morning and seeing Ruth there. But Naomi is beginning to see all this come together. She's been prayerful. And now she's perceptive and she's watching God's sovereign hand bring these two together to accomplish the plans of His steadfast love. She's been positive about it. She's been proactive as well. Look at chapter 2. Verse 22 and 23, Naomi doesn't just pray, she doesn't just observe, she in faith, and rightly so, suggests to Ruth, it's good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So Ruth responds. She responds submissively. So she kept close to the women, to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So Naomi takes a step forward and she says, Ruth, you should go and stay in Boaz's field. Keep gleaning with the women servants that he has. Okay. And now, Ruth even becomes more proactive in chapter 3. And what we see here is very, very interesting, and I think we'll all be able to relate to it very well. Naomi is proactive in making even another step forward to push Ruth toward Boaz. I want you to consider in, in, in Naomi's actions in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, first, her desire. What are her desires here? She says what they are. They're righteous desires. She says, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? She wants good for Ruth, doesn't she? I don't think we should try to read in any other motive than what is right on the page here, that Naomi wants good for Ruth. She wants her to be blessed. She wants her to, to know the blessings of marriage and the blessings of God through that, that life in the covenant family. 
And I would say even a step farther that not only her, her desires are good, she has righteous desires. She has holy desires to, to see Ruth be blessed, to have rest, to have it be well with her. But I would say also that, that she, her doctrine is good. Her understanding of the Word of God is good because she says in verse 2, is not Boaz our relative with whose young woman you were? And what Naomi is alluding to here and what Ruth is going to be talking about and Boaz is going to be talking about is these concepts of leveret relationship and redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. She is referring, first of all, let's, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 25. I want you to see what Ruth or what Naomi is appealing to here. This is what's behind her activity. So there's a, I'm sure you've heard the word leveret, L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E, leveret law. Something that was very common during the days of, of the Hebrew family here. And it really means, the word leveret refers to the brother-in-law. It's a Latin word that refers to brother-in-law. Look at Deuteronomy 25 and verse 5. If a brother dwells together, if, if brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger, Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her, the duty of the leveret. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. The first son. Notice that. The first son she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate and the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who has his sandal pulled off. This is so far removed from our culture, but, but we'll explain the intent of this. Very, very important for us to understand. There is a very specific intention that God has for us, uh, assigning to His people these gracious laws. Now there's another chapter in the Bible, Leviticus 25, that speaks of the kinsman redeemer. Very similar concept wasn't necessarily a brother-in-law, but someone in the family that would act in behalf 
of another person in his family who had come upon very, very distressful, difficult times. Such times that Ruth and Naomi would have experienced. And so this particular kinsman redeemer would buy back a piece of land and keep it in the family. Or if, if, a, if an individual was in so much debt that they had to sell themselves into slavery, that kinsman redeemer would buy that person out of slavery. Things like this. Or the kinsman redeemer might, might bring about justice in the family if one had killed another person and no one was going to pursue that justice. Well, it was the right of the kinsman redeemer, the role of the kinsman redeemer to pursue that justice. Now, there's these very strange rules to us, but they have a very, very important intent. And in order to understand that intent, remember the covenant that God has made with Israel. What has God said? What did God say to Abraham? I will bless you. I will make you a great family. I will give you a land upon which to thrive as my family. And through the family of God dwelling in that land, thriving, I will bring forth great blessing to the nations, which would ultimately be whom? Jesus Christ. So, what would happen then if a family's land was taken? What would happen then if a husband died and no children in that family could perpetuate? You see, God's promises were intricately interwoven with this covenant-chosen, loved people having land, being married, having children, having a family. The kingdom of God was growing through these very tangible, practical means in the Old Covenant. And so what would God do if this, the, these families experienced great catastrophe? Well, He's providing ways for the land to stay in the family. He's providing ways for a seed to continue to to grow and perpetuate. He's providing ways for His promises to Abraham to continue, even in very, very difficult and distressing days. That's what Naomi has in mind. That's exactly what she's doing. Her family, right, is part of the Ephrathites of Bethlehem. She's wanting the perpetuation of her family name. She's wanting her family's property to stay in the family, to continue. Why? Why? For, for the glory of God, for the fulfillment of the, prom, the gospel promises that God had given to His people. I will make your name great. I will bless you. I will give you land for this large family. And through the family, the seed will come to bring salvation. She is in faith, making good, seeking to make good on the provisions of God's law to fulfill His promises. That's that's what this is all about. So even here, Naomi has a great desire for Ruth. Her her doctrine is biblical. She's, She's thinking about Deuteronomy 25 and Leviticus 25, and she is devoted in a Godward way with a very... Very, uh, very close perspective on the covenant promises of God. She wants that for herself. She wants that for Ruth. Now, Naomi then goes, goes wrong in her directions to Ruth. This is where we often go wrong as well. We have great desires. 
Before, before you get hard on Naomi here, think about how we do. We have great desires. We, seek to, we see God's providential hand at work. We've prayed for God's will to be done. We see what God is doing. Our hearts are for the gospel to be perpetuated. We, we are thinking biblically, but then in our application, our actions, it is so easy sometimes to, to try to run ahead of God, run ahead of His timing. Live things out in a way that is even presumptive, impatient, unwise, even sinful, tempting. I want you to see the faith of Naomi's heart here, but the impatience, the inconsistency, the unwiseness of her action, of her direction. And and the reason I say this is, and you'll see this, that she's inconsistent is because remember at the end of, we read it, at the end of Ruth chapter 2, she said, Ruth, verse 22, it's good that you go out with his young women, stay with his women servants, lest in another field you be assaulted. She's looking out. Naomi, at the end of chapter 2, is looking out for Ruth's well-being and her safety. And here, what is she suggesting that Ruth do? Go in the dead of night to the threshing floor where there's going to be all these men working, sleeping all over the floor, and do what? Now, here's the thing. I I assume that many of us have heard this text explained in such a way where we might say, well, this is a common Israelite custom. How many of you have heard it explained that way? Would you raise your hand? I'm just curious. Okay, not too many. There is certainly the background of the Leverett Law and the background of the Redeemer. But the actions that Naomi suggests in the application of those things are not anywhere found as an Israelite custom. This This is a very interesting approach that Naomi takes. Naomi's heart was informed by Scripture. Her directions went beyond what the Word of God has prescribed. She was trying to read the providential hand of God in light of the Word of God, and that's good, but then she impatiently and unwisely took matters into her own hands in trying to advance the plans of God by applying God's Word in a way that was wrong, untimely, potentially harmful even to both Ruth and Boaz. Think about what she's doing here. Look at it. Look at the commands. Wash, right? Make yourself appealing to Boaz. Not necessarily a bad thing. Anoint yourself. Put on perfume. Put on ointment. Put on your cloak. Right? This was, this was um, typically uh, an attire that was worn even for weddings. It wasn't something provocative. It was something very covering. Let's be careful not to import our 21st century concept of romance into this text, right? That's that's important not to do as well. But then she says, go down to the threshing floor, but don't make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. Right? There's such secretiveness about this. Something's not right when there's secrecy like this involved. Watch where he sleeps. Watch where he goes down to sleep. Don't let him see you until 
you wake him up, go, uncover his feet. And actually, the language here is very ambiguous as well. We, we, we have translated this as feet, but other, other, other uh, places in the Bible, this word is translated as legs. Lay down by his feet and listen to what he tells you to do. When was this application of the, the laws of God's gracious provision ever prescribed? You won't find them in Scripture. How many of you mothers would suggest that your daughters do something like this? I don't think any of you would. Right? She, <clears throat> she seems to have great confidence in Boaz and Ruth, for that matter, yet this seems to be a very risky for all parties involved. You'll see that in how Boaz responds to it later as well. Think about what this could have done for Ruth's reputation. Think about what this could have done for Boaz's reputation. Consider the secrecy. Consider the Old Testament references to the threshing floor. There are other Old Testament references to the threshing floor that are not pretty references. And, and when we come to this time in the story, we, we see this unfolding. We see her directions very ambiguous and thinking, wow, how is this going to turn out? Will Ruth do it? In the middle of the night? Will she, w- w- surrounded by all these sleeping men? Will she actually do this? What makes, how is Boaz going to respond? What's he going to say when he's woken up in the middle of the night? How is this going to work out? In fact, I would say, and this may be a helpful comparison, Naomi's heart and plan reminds me somewhat of Abraham's heart and plans. When he told Sarah, what? Hey, why don't you go and tell the king of Egypt that you're my sister? That kind of thing I feel is going on. He wants the promises of God to be fulfilled. His heart is set on it. He's believed God. He's been counted righteous. But all of a sudden he begins to employ some worldly, earthly, human sort of means to see God's promises moved along. Not only that account of Abraham's life, but also Abraham was Sarah and Hagar, the Egyptian. Right? This, is, this is a man who loves God, is trusting God's promises, wanting to see God's covenant promises fulfilled, and not waiting on God's timing. Taking matters into his own hands. And the narrative illustrates, I guess in a sense illustratively gives us a hint about the spiritual direction of even the story of Ruth. Because, remember, Hebrew is such a pictorial language. When does all of this happen? When does, when does the, the block of time in which Ruth 3 unfolds? It's in the middle of the night. That indicates something to you as well. This is not, this is not a good time, Right? This is not a bright time. This is something dark. This is something secret. This is something, something that, that is even dangerous. So then, will God abandon them in this? Will this all go wrong? Will God give up on them? Will God give them over to their own weaknesses? What will Ruth do? What will Boaz do? So there you have Ruth's plan. Number two, let's look at I mean, uh, Naomi's plan. Number two, let's look at Ruth's pursuit as the story unfolds. How does Ruth respond to Naomi? Well, she responds really as we anticipate she would. She's been very submissive, very humble, very meek 
all the way through this. And so she says in verse 5, all that you say, I will do. Ruth has been faithful. She promised in the beginning. She, she embraced faith in God, in Yahweh. She abandoned her people, her gods, her land, her afterlife for Naomi's, for Yahweh's people. She's been faithful. She's been faithful to make good on her promises to care for Naomi. She has lived with Naomi. She has provided for Naomi. She has worked hard for her, cared for her. She's been industrious in that. The, the foreman on the field saw that in chapter 2, verse 7. She's been commended for that in, 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 by even Boaz. She has gotten right back to it in chapter 2, verse 17, after the meal, and she finished her work and brought home provide provisions for Naomi. Ruth has been humble. She knows she doesn't deserve the kindness of the Lord or the kindness of, of Boaz. She considers herself a servant. She's grateful for the grace that she's been, been showed. And, and Ruth is submissive. And we see that here. She agrees, so she went down to the threshing floor. She did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her, verse 6, verse 7. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, his heart was merry. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. She was submissive. She did almost naively what she was told to do. But trusting in the Lord, which we'll see. Now, I want you to see God's grace at work in Ruth's life right here at a very, very vulnerable spot. Ruth, in a precarious situation, is filled with the Spirit, you might say, is given much grace. Look at verse 9. Look what she says. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Why was that Ruth's comment? Where did she get that from? You ever think about that? I mean, laying there, uncovered his feet, waiting for him to wake up. He wakes up. Who are you? I'm Ruth. I mean, how would she have felt? I mean, put yourself there. I'm Ruth. I'm asking you to marry me, right? And spread your wings over your servant. Uh, you are a redeemer. You know what Ruth is doing? Ruth is responding to the very words that Boaz said to her. Remember what Boaz said to her? Look back at chapter 2, verse 12. Boaz blessed her. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord and God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Here's what, here's what, Boaz, here's what Ruth is saying. She's been thinking through this. She's been understanding the providential hand of God brought her and Boaz together. She is wanting God's will in this. She wants to take refuge under the shadow of Yahweh's wings. And Boaz says to this, he says, I, I see this in your life. I know you pursuing this. You have abandoned your people, your gods, your land, your afterlife for that of Yahweh. You have taken shelter under the wings of Yahweh by faith. And I, and I, I see that in you. And I, and I call that upon your life in blessing. And so now, 
Ruth is coming back to Boaz and saying to him, will you be that channel of blessing for me? Will you be the channel by which God protects and provides and cares for me and my family? She is, again, trusting in the provisions of God, even right here. Ruth is being spiritually attentive. She's insightful. She's responsive to Boaz's initiation in the previous chapter. She's purposeful. She has her mind's eye on on God as being her refuge, her shelter. And so she is inviting Boaz to become that. I also see that she is being very selfless here. Verse 10. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. Please notice this. This tells you so much about what is going on in in Ruth's heart. What What does Boaz mean? The last kindness is greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. Or whether poor or rich. See, you know, when Ruth's coming to Boaz like this, she's not seeking for her own sensual pleasure. Boaz was probably an older man. Yes, single. But an older man. And she was probably just out of her teens. And she, like he says, could have pursued a younger man to bring her great earthly pleasure. She could have tried to pursue wealth or just simply the pleasure of a, of a, a younger man in that way. And do, is that what she's after? No, she's not after that. She is again after God's covenant promises being unfolded in her family. She does that for, for a couple of reasons. Why does Boaz say this? Your last kindness is is, is greater than your first. What was Ruth's first kindness? To come and take care of Naomi, wasn't it? That's what he commended her for previously. Look back at, at Boaz's words in chapter 2. Verse, verse um, 11, Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Look what he says, all that you have done for who? Your mother-in-law. Ruth was reflecting steadfast love. She had a servant's heart. She was reflecting the love that God has shown her to Naomi. And what is she doing here even in pursuing Boaz? Isn't she loving her mother-in-law again? She's denying her own physical, temporal, sensual pleasures in order to provide and care for this family that has been left bereft by three dead household heads. Right? And she's doing that. Not for herself, but for Naomi. And ultimately, for the development of God's covenant promises to this family. That's what Ruth is doing, and that's why Boaz says that. This is even a greater kindness than your first. It's one thing to work hard and bring food to your mother-in-law. It's another thing to, 
to be willing to pursue marriage with me for the good of your mother-in-law and her family and the forwarding of God's covenant promises. Notice also verse 14. She does not make any sort of advance toward him at all. She lay at his feet until the morning, verse 14, and arose before anyone could recognize her. So I see here God graciously at work in Ruth's heart, selflessly loving, denying her immediate sensual pleasures for God's sake, for Boaz, for her own good, by holy restraint, as well as denying her sensual pleasures for Naomi's best interest and for the forwarding of God's covenant purposes. Verse 11, Ruth is virtuous. He says this of her, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a what? A worthy woman. There's that same word again. We saw it back in chapter 2, verse 1, with Boaz, a worthy man. It's an excellent man. And here we have an excellent woman, the same word that's used in Proverbs 31, the same word that's used in Proverbs 13 of the generous man. If Ruth has one fault here, it's that she is immature. I mean, she's just come to Christ, right? She doesn't know a whole lot yet. She's naive in, in discernment, and, and maybe she didn't even question her mother-in-law's advice. But even so, here's the point. God and His steadfast love is guiding and protecting Ruth and will work out His glorious redemptive plan even through this unwise method of pursuing a godly, biblical, God-centered desire. They want something that God's law prescribes. They pursue it in an unwise way. God is still at work. God is plan, God's plan is continuing. So we have, we have Naomi's plan. We have Ruth's pursuit. Last, Boaz is poised. Again, I ask the questions. Will God abandon them here? Here's the climax of the chapter. Ruth puts herself forward to request this of Boaz. Will God give up on them? Will God give them over to their own weaknesses? How will Boaz respond? And again, God's kindness overshadows the whole story. Because as we know, God provides graciously that Boaz is also virtuous. He values integrity above anything else. Chapter 2, verse 1, he's a virtuous man. He is godly. Remember in his greeting in, in chapter 2 and verse 4, his, his precious prize is the presence of Yahweh. Boaz is discreet. Whose woman is this? Chapter 2, verse 5. Boaz is providing. We catch this, this generous heart from Boaz that's fueled by the steadfast love of God. Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Chapter 2, 14 and 16. He, he pours provision upon Ruth. Boaz is protective. Chapter 2, verse 9 and 15 and 16. He's constantly at work to protect her from those who would harm her as she pursues God's will. Boaz values true virtue. He affirms that in Ruth, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Boaz is gracious and comforting and kind and gentle and encouraging. And even here, we see God's grace at work. Because Boaz, too, is in a very precarious situation, isn't he? Very precarious situation. It's in the dead of night, in a threshing floor, in a barn with 
nothing but men all around. And here's this beautiful young woman that appears at his feet. What's the first thing we see? Verse 8. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. Did he feel the cold, the cold air coming across his toes? What woke him up? Maybe just the presence of another person breathing nearby. How, how do you respond when you are woken in the middle of the night? Sometimes we get frustrated when someone wakes us up in the middle of the night. We don't always respond, and, and our minds are not always awake so quickly, and, and our character isn't shining, or maybe it is, at those moments in the middle of the night. Notice what Boaz doesn't do. He doesn't take advantage of Ruth. He does not yell at her and say, what in the world are you doing here? Don't you know what you could be doing right now? What could cost us our reputation? Everything. I'm going to lose my reputation in the Jewish community. This is going to be terrible. You could have done this. You could have waited till morning. You could have waited till the middle of the day. You should have come to the field again and asked me this. Not now. You know all this. You could imagine all the things that he could have said and could have done. Is that what Boaz does? The steadfast love of God has so shaped his character that even when he's woken up in the middle of the night, who are you? And the next words out of his mouth, may you be blessed by the Lord. Wow. Talk about a godly response in the middle of the night. He's startled, certainly. He's in a very precarious situation and he knows it. But he's insightful. He looks beyond her immaturity. He looks beyond the bad plan of Naomi. And he sees Ruth's heart. He discerns it. He's wise. He's insightful. He knows why she's there. As soon as she says to him, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant. You are Redeemer. I don't even know why ultimately Ruth came in the middle of the night. Maybe because Ruth was a Moabite. Maybe, that's what, maybe that was her justification. Boy, if, if she does that in the day, she's going to be laughed out of the city. But maybe if she comes quietly at night. I, I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But whatever the case may be, Boaz was so much like Christ to her. Like God in his loving kindness. Insightful discerns her heart and intentions. Verses 10 and 11, he's gracious, he's kind, he's encouraging. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in which you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, oh, how often has God, maybe even through a messenger, sent, said those words to a trembling servant, do not fear I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. He's not questioning her character. He knows who she is. He knows what has been in her heart. She is, they've talked about it. She, he's seen her actions pour forth from her heart. And he's affirming to her. He's gracious. He's kind. He's encouraging. He's gentle. He's generous. He's even protective here. Look at verses 13 and 14, remain here tonight and in the morning. 
If he will redeem you, good, let him, let him do it. But if not, he is unwilling to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I'll redeem you. Lie down till morning. Right? Don't, so if it was bad enough for her to come there in the middle of the night and stay at his feet, wouldn't it be even worse for her to send her home in the middle of the night? So he, he, he both protects her and exercises amazing self-control and integrity. He's protective over her physically. He's protective over her spiritually, her reputation. He's protective over her from himself and his own, his own desires that could have taken advantage of her. He's, he's protective over her from others who could take advantage of her of that, in that middle of the night. He's protective over her from disgrace. He's principled, though. He's principled. He understands God's law, and he wants to obey it. Look at verse 12. It is true that I'm a redeemer, yet... There is a Redeemer nearer than I. Like, I'd be happy to do this, but there's someone closer, and that's what God's law prescribes. He's principled, and He's faithful. He says, I will do what you ask. Remain here tonight in the morning. I'll do it. If He doesn't do it, I'll be willing to redeem you. As the Lord lives, He makes an oath to her. He's a man of integrity. He's a man of his word. He's gentle, he's assuring, and he's generous. She does what he says. She lies down until morning, rose before one could recognize the other, and he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Apparently he's talking to maybe some of the other men that began to wake up that early hour of the morning. Again, he's trying to protect her reputation and his own. Bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it out, and measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. I mean, again, he is so generous to her. He's pouring out this grain, wraps it up in a sack, and puts it on her. Like, this is too much, boys. I can't get it over my shoulder. I'll help you. Puts it on her and sends her home. So how does this scene close as we come to the conclusion? Look at verse 16. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Could you imagine how Naomi must have felt all night long? Do you think she got any sleep? Probably not. And she was just there, just drumming her fingers, tapping her foot, waiting for her to return. Like, what happened? As soon as Ruth comes bursting through the door, and by the way, these last two chapters, we find Ruth bursting through the door with lots of grain in her back, probably... Her perfume has worn off by now, and, and, and she's sweaty, and she's exhausted, and, and she's breathless because she's been carrying grain all the way back from Boaz's barn. And so Naomi says, how did you fare, my daughter? How did this go? What happened? Tell me what happened. She's anxious, probably nervous. And then Naomi, Ruth told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave me, where he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Isn't that interesting? There's kindness and understanding in Boaz's heart. But I think here's a gentle rebuke for Naomi. Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Got it? You see? He's gentle, he's gracious, but... I understand what you're after, but maybe not the right way in which you should have done it. 
But he's still assuring her, I will do what you have said. Otherwise, he wouldn't have sent that gracious gift with her. And we know what happens with Naomi's heart because she responds in a very different way. Verse 18, wait, my daughter. That's the right response. Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Naomi, with a changed heart, advises Ruth to wait patiently upon the godly integrity of Boaz. So is this story mainly about these characters who exercise both frailty, failure, impatience, and godliness toward one another? I don't think that's the main picture here. I think this is a, this is a, a very applicable situation. Yes, it's, it's many, many centuries ago. But we do the same sorts of things. And yet, Yahweh is full of steadfast love and faithfulness for His chosen people. He will bring us to conversion, humble repentance, to faithfully trust His promises. Yes, He will draw us through providence, both painful and pleasant. He will form His character in us. He will bring us to one another. He will prepare us for good works. And yet often as our lives in Christ and service unfold, we do seek to discern the good works that He has for us to walk in, don't we? We want, we try to understand what He has planned for us. There's the, there's the moral revealed will of God, which we know in the Scriptures, but isn't there the sovereign will of God, which isn't revealed there? And we often say, well, well what does God have for me next? What spouse? What place of education? What job? What house? What? And, and all of these things matter for the eternal purposes of God. And so we often are prayerful asking for God's will to be done. We try to be perceptive about God's providential hand so, our, so that we can submit to Him and follow Him. We want to be proactive and by faith take initiative in a righteous way. And often we have good desires in our hearts and, and a good grasp of God's revealed will. But in an effort sometimes to perceive God's sovereign will so that we know what He wants us to do, we may run ahead of God's timing or, or try to. We might misapply God's revealed will, even place ourselves or someone else in a precarious situation, even to potentially compromise. That may happen. Has that ever happened to you? Has that sort of situation ever unfolded in your own heart? I'm sure it has. What then? Have you ever been worried that you would fall out of God's will? That you'd be irretrievably lost from God's will? Have you ever wondered, will God's redemptive plan in my life be thwarted? Will His good will be irretrievably lost to us? Will our lives be discarded and become a waste? What's the answer to that according to this narrative? Absolutely not. Our eternal God and His steadfast love and faithfulness has calculated already all of our faults and frailties and failures and faithlessness into His sovereign providence. God's plan will not be thwarted by our lack of judgment or our impatience. He is sovereign over all. Can you take heart with that today? God Himself is a protecting and providing God in spite of us. His redemptive will will be done even through our immaturities. He is indeed a Redeemer. 
Now, again, this is an excuse to avoid patient wisdom and waiting on God's time and seeking God's ways. This is not an excuse to do whatever we want with God's word. This is reason to trust God. To wait on Him. To submit completely to to His word and His ways and His timing. To pursue actually what God prescribes and not invent things for ourselves to move ahead God's plans. This is a call to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, know Him and He will make your path straight. Isn't so much of the Christian life actively waiting on God? This is, this is, this is Psalm 37, 4 and 5. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way unto the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. That's the application of this. And like Naomi, we learn wisdom and patience on the other side of God's gracious work and even through our haste. How often have we come on the other side of an experience like this and and we look back and we think, wow, did God work in spite of me? How many times have you said that word? God has worked in spite of me. That's the message of this chapter. God was unfolding His redemptive plans in spite of Naomi and Ruth. Now before we close, I want to consider one more really important question. Why does God, why does Yahweh our God treat us with such steadfast love like this? Faithfulness. Even when we think and speak and act like we, like we used to before we were His children. Why? Why does he bother? You know, God deals with us in our frailty and failures and faithlessness very much like Boaz dealt with Naomi and Ruth. I think we're so often in this story drawn to Boaz because he reminds us of Jesus. Doesn't he? He's meant to. He's Christ-like, this man, by God's grace. Here you have this feeble plan, these wandering women seeking, trying to find their way, and yet they're received well, generously, kindly, lovingly. They're given provision and protection. They are kept. They are cared for. They are shepherded. They are told what to do, right? That's what Naomi said. He'll tell you what to do. The man, as it said at the end of the chapter, the man would do all that he said he would do. You know, really, that that points us to Christ. We come to Christ, he will tell us all that we are to do. And he, the true man, the ultimate man, will do all that he has promised to us. I immediately think of Romans 8, 31 through 39. If God is for us, who can be against against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? That's what we see in Boaz. Who can separate us from the love of God? Right? That's the story played out in real time. Ephesians 5, 25-27. He laid down his life for us so that he would purify us. Sanctifying us by the washing of the water with the words that he would present us to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That's like Boaz with Ruth. That's like Christ is with us. 
How great is the steadfast love and faithfulness of Yahweh. Before we pray, maybe you're here this morning and, and you're not yet a believer. Have you come to rest under the shadow of the wings of Yahweh? Like Ruth? Have you come to take shelter under God's wings? You know, you need that, right? We all do. We need a shelter from the judgment of God against our sin. And God himself has provided that shelter in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, we often invite you to come to Christ as you think about the wrath of God against your sin and eternal separation from God, and that is absolutely true. It's important that you consider what your sin and my sin deserves and what eternity will hold if you do not take shelter under the wings of Yahweh through Jesus Christ. But there's another aspect to the invitation to come to Christ. It's His mercy. It's His grace. It's His kindness. It's His gentleness and patience with us. He invites us to come and to take that shelter in Christ. To know His mercy and kindness. His generosity. His patience. His grace with us. Just like we see with Boaz and Ruth. So come to Him. And he will not turn you away. The scriptures say it. All who come to me, Jesus said, I will never cast out. I will raise him up on the last day. I love the invitation, and then we'll pray of Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Would you stand with me and let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, these, this narrative is very, very encouraging to us. Settle our hearts in your rest as we know the power of your providence and the supremacy of your sovereignty. May we learn to trust you with all of our hearts and not lean on our own understanding. May we seek to set our desire in you, to delight ourselves in you, that you may grant to us the very desires of our heart, that those desires being granted to us would lead us into the unfolding of your eternal redemptive plan. Father, you are weaving a tapestry of us you have put us together as your people. And you are doing a work to conquer the kingdom of darkness, to bring about all of the plans of Christ the Savior that he has to bring many sons to glory. Do it in us, Father, please, we pray. Do it in spite of us. Encourage us. When we become overwhelmed by a sense of our own frailty and our failures, knowing that you are not bound by them, but you are so full of gracious and gr grace and mercy and kindness to us that you welcome us, you receive us, you, you work in spite of us, and you even incorporate into your plans our own failure. Father, you are absolutely amazing in your steadfast love. We thank you for the encouragement of this text. 
We pray that you would use it to work in us. Not to call us to irresponsibility, but to call us to love for you and trust in you so that we reflect your ways and wait on you and trust your timing and trust your word. Father, we thank you. We pray that you would do this work for Jesus' sake. Amen.